0: Welcome to a Prevent Connect podcast where we explore the prevention of violence against women. This is a project of the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Hi, this is Ashley with Prevent Connect, and today I'm here to continue our series on sexual health promotion and sexual violence prevention, Making the Connection. And I'm really pleased to have with me Carrie Kessler from. Public Health of Seattle and King County, and Carrie is a family planning health educator. Hi, Carrie, how are you doing? Hi, Ashley, I'm good. And I also have Rebecca Millman from the Harborview Center for Sexual Assault and Traumatic Stress, and Rebecca is a prevention and education coordinator. Hi, Rebecca, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Ashley, thanks for having us.
0: So today we want to continue to talk about making that connection, and you all have and use a sexual health promotion curriculum that really incorporates sexual violence prevention. So why don't you tell me more about that curriculum?
1: Sure. FLESH is a curriculum, a sexual health curriculum, that is published by Public Health Seattle and King County, and it actually was originally published in 1988. It's a curriculum that is free and online, and basically it's a sexual health curriculum that's taught in elementary school, middle school, and high school. So there's three different versions, and additionally there's also a special education version as well for children with developmental disabilities, and it's focused on pregnancy and STD prevention, but it also has a very good component as well focused on sexual violence prevention. It's used pretty widely in Washington State. There's about 50 school districts here that have adopted the curriculum, and it's also has been adopted in in some other states as well and actually internationally, so it's pretty widely used because it's a great curriculum and also because it's very accessible because it is free and online.
2: This is Carrie. The curriculum has been around for a long time, and public health has always updated it for medical accuracy and when, you know, there are new developments in the field, a new birth control method comes out or whatnot. But a couple years ago, we undertook a complete revision of the high school curriculum, and we're working now on a complete revision of the middle school curriculum. After that, we'll get to elementary. And it's because in the last 10 years or so, maybe even more recently than that, there's been a lot of new research that's come up, to help direct us in terms of what's effective especially teen pregnancy and std prevention. If you go online and take a look at the lessons, you'll see that the high
0: school curriculum
2: now says that it's a second edition.
0: Great. In the first part of this series, I talked with Jonathan Iglesias from the Department of Health in Washington about connections between sexual violence prevention and sexual health. And one of the things we talked about were the connections in the theoretical frameworks that are used in each issue. What are some of those and how are they incorporated into FLASH? You know, it's such a
2: good question and it has been such interesting work for us to do. And this is how Rebecca and I came to work so closely together. So as we were working on the revision of the high school curriculum and we were looking, FLASH has always included a strong sexual violence prevention component, but we realized that we would really benefit from working more collaboratively with local sexual assault prevention educators. So myself and my colleague Becky Reitzes, who's another family planning health educator here, teamed up with Rebecca and another local sexual assault prevention educator, Mo Lewis, who's at the King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, and also Lindsay Palmer joined our first meeting. She was from the King County Sexual Sexual Assault Resource Center as well, and Erin Casey, who's the professor who looks at evaluation of sexual assault prevention programs. So we all came together to revise these sexual violence lessons and had a chance to dive more deeply into the research. And part of why we felt the need to do that is that there's a lot of really good recent pregnancy and the STD prevention research, and the research around sexual violence prevention is a little less far along in its development. It's a little less clear. So I'll talk mostly about the work of Doug Kirby, who's sort of the leader in the field of teen pregnancy prevention and STD prevention, We're, and I'll focus mostly on teenagers because FLASH is, of course, a curriculum that's designed to be used in the schools with young people. Doug Kirby has put out a lot of really interesting research and I think 2007, he published a document called Emerging Answers, folks can easily find it online, that sort of puts together everything that we know about best practices for preventing teen pregnancy and teen STD acquisition and what is in that document that's so useful that guides our work is a list of determinants. They call them determinants. Folks may be more familiar with them as just really risk and protective factors. So things that put people at risk for becoming pregnant or being involved in a pregnancy or contracting an STD. And many of those, they also rank them according to amenability to change. And so many of them are things that are not highly amenable to change. You know, living in poverty increases the likelihood that someone will get pregnant when they're young. If someone's parent was a teenager when they gave birth to them, that person is at an increased risk for becoming pregnant as a teenager themselves. So those are determinants, but they're not highly amenable to change. And in fact, they're not amenable to change almost at all. In the classroom, there's nothing we can do to impact that. But there's a whole set of determinants that are labeled, I think, sexual attitudes and beliefs that are highly amenable to change. They rank as the most highly amenable to change, and they're the sorts of things that we are already focusing on when we do sexual health education, and those are the things that really guide our work in FLASH, and so those are things like more positive attitudes towards birth control and condoms and abstinence, more confidence in one's ability to demand condom use, positive peer norms related to birth control use or related to and greater skill in condom use. So there's a whole bunch of determinants. Folks could take a look at them. But that is really the, the research that guides our teen pregnancy and STD prevention. And what we wanted was a similar list of determinants for sexual violence prevention. And that, of course, doesn't really exist. What does exist are a list of risk factors put together by the CDC that are based out of a theoretical model that explains male sexual violence against women called the confluence model. And Erin Casey, who I mentioned, who was at our original meeting, who's a local professor who looks at these issues, also suggested that we use the confluence model to guide our work. So that was an easy match because we were used to looking at these lists of risk and protective factors and thinking about how we could influence them through our work. And so the risk factors that sort of come out of the confluence model that are from the CDC. There's a lot of them, you know, and they work their way through. There's the individual level and interpersonal and community and societal, I think. So, and we looked at a few of the individual and a few of the societal because those seem to be the things we might be able to influence in a school based curriculum. And so some of the things that really popped out were the risk factors for perpetration of sexual violence. So these are things that put someone at risk for committing an act of sexual violence, which was an important theoretical focus or philosophical focus for us, but in our lessons we were not at all interested in recreating some of the ineffective lessons that we've seen out there that attempt to educate people about how to not be victimized, because of course we know that's not really possible and probably not all that ethical and generally just not effective. So mm-hmm. that's the other reason that we chose to focus here. So some of those risk factors were things like hostility towards women, hyper-masculinity, and then there were some societal norms that similarly look at these gender differences, like societal norms that support male superiority and sexual entitlement, societal norms that maintain women's inferiority and sexual submissiveness. And these were the determinants, if you will, the risk factors that guide us in our sexual violence prevention lessons, and they led us to really take a very strong look at gender gender roles, sexism, misogyny in our lessons and to make sure that our lessons were really focused around potential perpetrators. And what was useful in that way was that we also then were looking at skill sets like communication, refusal skills, negotiation skills that cut across the whole curriculum. So there's a real theoretical intersection there. And that this kind of Sexism and misogyny really also plays out across the curriculum because those same things that would leave women vulnerable to sexual assault also leave them vulnerable to contracting an STD or becoming pregnant in the way that they are, have less power in their sexual relationships to negotiate condom and
1: birth control use.
2: And so that's really where that for us in school-based education, that's really where our theoretical intersection came together.
0: Wow, well it sounds like you've really incorporated these frameworks into Flash. So Rebecca, how did that play out in the curriculum?
1: Yeah, so we have incorporated, like Carrie was talking about, a lot of the theoretical frameworks and research that we looked at. We've incorporated that into the activities and the lessons in the curriculum. One example is, you know, we decided through our discussions and in reviewing the research that the skills and attitudes that teens really need to reduce their likelihood of committing sexual violence are actually pretty similar to a lot of the skills that they need to negotiate abstinence or to have safer sex with a partner. The skills that include, you know, saying no, also hearing no is especially important. Important. They also need to kind of shift their attitudes and beliefs about gender because the hypermasculinity risk factor, the belief in rigid gender roles, is an effect on both issues related to sexual violence and sexual health. So we did some activities in flash that focus on attempting to kind of change some of the the norms among their peers uh, using a norm resetting approach, and that's something that. I think the sexual violence field does bring to the field of sexual health because of our our work in community development, community organizing, working on changing kind of the whole attitude and and norms among a group of teens. So we have a lot of group activities. We also have a, a, a norm resetting survey that was used in the attempt to, you know, have be able to hear the opinions of their peers to make them think twice about maybe how they think about it because a lot of times peers are so influenced by how their peers are acting but also how they think that other people are behaving or how they think their friends think about an issue, and so it's really great to have teens kind of talk about this in kind of a social learning kind of setting. Also, aside from the prevention theory links, we felt these topics were linked because in health class, it's just kind of a natural setting for kids to be talking about these issues. When they're discussing sex, they're thinking about all of the sexual experiences that they've had and that their friends have had, and some of those experiences do include sexual violence, so we thought it was a natural fit within the curriculum. And then, lastly, the other link that we saw was there is research that shows that survivors of sexual violence are also more likely to become pregnant or to be involved in an unintended pregnancy or contract, contract an STD. And so, again, we saw this curriculum as having a role in preventing sexual violence, but also when you're attempting to prevent sexual violence, you're also attempting to prevent pregnancy, teen pregnancy as well, and also STD acquisition.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think what's interesting is, Carrie, you're from a public health department and Rebecca, you're from a local community-based organization, and you've all really cl- collaborated really well on these efforts to bring together sexual violence prevention and sexual health. So, what does that look like? It's been really a phenomenal
2: collaboration. Rebecca already had been collaborating with my colleague, Becky Rice, who I mentioned because they were working covering a a similar geographic region of the county, which was part of how we originally all came together. And I just want to say I think I had wanted to be working more closely with sexual violence educators for a while and had struggled a little bit to find a fit, to find a a project or something that seemed like the right way to do that. And the Flash writing team was such a good opportunity to bring us together. And I think having the chance to sit around as a team and sort of hash through these theoretical issues and bring our different perspectives about it to the table and essentially create theory as we were sitting there, create these models out of this theory and think about how we should operationalize this into a lesson. Just the experience of doing that together was so useful and I think so broadening for me personally, I'll just say. So obviously, like with anything else, the relationships that we built with one another in that way really helped us to continue collaborating together. And so we still are working together, working on the middle school lessons now, but since we all came together as that team, I think we have found a lot of other opportunities to work together, which is fantastic, I think, besides the fact that cross-disciplinary teams just are generally a good model. This intersection is so important, and I think it is so sort of unexplored. I think there's so much to be gained by bringing folks together. Just some of the other things that we've done since we came together on the team is that Rebecca and Mo came to a a training um, that was put on by the health department for folks who wanted to be FLASH trainers. So now they're both certified trainers to train on the FLASH curriculum, which allows them a much broader reach with teachers, if that's what they choose to do. And then also the four of us Mo, Becky, Rebecca, and myself presented two years ago at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs Annual Conference, and we put together a three-hour session that went over these lessons, since they're free and available online, they're lessons that anyone can use, and we thought they would be really valuable to that sexual assault prevention to to get their hands on some lessons that folks had been so thoughtful about, but also we realized that sexual assault prevention educators don't get a lot of professional development. There's not a lot of professional development opportunities out there about classroom presentation skills, the kinds of things that we do in sexual health education that we offer trainings on how to answer students' difficult questions about sex in the same way that sexual health educators may be unprepared to answer questions about sexual violence which they're going to get, sexual violence educators may be unprepared to answer questions that are more broadly about sex, which they're going to get, too. So we were pleased to be able to put that presentation together, and it was really very well received by the folks there. And then we've done a lot of other stuff in the community. I'll let Rebecca tell you about that.
1: Sure. And Some of the other things that we've done is we've invited our public health colleagues to our violence prevention coalition meetings. So we've kind of attended each other's meetings. Um, we've, we've helped make connections for each other because a lot of us do work in the local middle schools and high schools, so sometimes you have a great connection with a health teacher at a school, and then, you know, I will often refer my colleague at Public Health, oh, you should have them come out and talk too, and they can do lessons around birth control and abstinence from the SLASH curriculum and also provide trainings for your teachers on how to implement the curriculum. We do outreach like that for each other. Also, sometimes when I'm doing outreach with a school, even just a you know community fair to you know raise awareness about our our clinic, our sexual violence program, I also will bring often resources from our local public health clinic. They have a great resource at public health here called the Teen Clinic where youth can go in. Um, It's a drop-in clinic, and they can get free or low-cost birth control, and they can get exams, and I like to bring those with me wherever I go because I find teens always are interested in that, and sometimes I'm in a school where maybe public health hasn't been invited, so I'm happy to also you know, be an unofficial kind of outreach person for them as well. And then we've done a lot of cross-training, so I've invited our public health colleagues, Becky and Carrie and Celia, into doing trainings for our sexual assault staff here and also at King County Sexual Assault Center. Carrie's gone and done some work with them. I do a community development project at a local high school, and I've invited my public health colleague to be one of our stakeholders on that project, and she's been able to do a lot of work with that project with me. We just Basically, we just do a lot of technical assistance with each other. As you probably know, Ashley, in the work in prevention, you know, relationships are just so key. I just feel like that's the key to yeah. success in prevention is mm-hmm. relationships. And so once these relationships were formed, you know, we just have such kind of an open communication where I will call or email or text a quick question. So there's a lot of consultation and technical assistance back and forth between ours. I think sexual violence has a lot to learn from public health, and it's nice to hear that Carrie felt it's been beneficial to them, too. So I think there's things that we both bring to the table, and it's really been fun, you know, this whole writing team for FLASH and getting out into the schools and actually getting to pilot it together. You know, it's work that's been important, but it's also really fun. And I think a lot of that's because of the relationships and because we have a lot of the same kind of philosophical and kind of agree on our theoretical framework.
0: Right, it's so great to see this really concrete example of those relationships working. And so they benefit sexual violence prevention, they benefit sexual health promotion, and they really help connect the two issues. I just want to thank you. I've been talking with Carrie Kessler and Rebecca Millman, and we have been continuing our series on making the connection between sexual health promotion and sexual violence prevention. Carrie and Rebecca, I will go ahead and put up the link to the Flash curriculum in the blog post to this podcast. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks hey, for thank you so us, much,
0: Ashley. Thank you for listening to this Prevent Connect podcast. Prevent Connect is a project of the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault, with funding from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The views presented on Prevent Connect are not necessarily the views of the United States government, the CDC, or Calcasa. To learn more about Prevent Connect, visit www.preventconnect.org. For more information about Calcasa's mission or to show your support, visit calcasa.org. That's C-A-L-C-A-S-A dot O-R-G.